Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. I'm Tommy Metter, lead pastor of Northwood Baptist Church in North Charleston, South Carolina. And today, I know exactly what you need. You need hope and encouragement. And it is my prayer that the message you are about to hear helps you find hope and encouragement in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Hey, if you'd like to learn more about our church, visit our website, northwoodbaptist.com, or follow us on Facebook. Now, get ready for a message that will help you connect faith to life. Okay. Ready? Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. I'm Tommy Metter, lead pastor of Northwood Baptist Church in North Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, if you're listening today, I know exactly what you need. You need hope and encouragement. And my prayer is that the message you are about to hear will help you find hope and encouragement in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about our church, visit our website, northwoodbaptist.com, or follow us on Facebook. Now, get ready for a message that will help you connect faith to life. mind take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Psalms. We've been journeying through the book of Psalms now for several months and over the next five or six weeks we'll begin concluding our study in the book of Psalms. But this morning we're in Psalm 85. So go ahead and find Psalm 85 in your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, just open your Bible to the middle. If you open your Bible to the middle, uh, you should find yourself right in the book of Psalms and just turn on over to Psalm 85 and join us there. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, that's okay because in the seat before you, down the book rack, you should find a copy of the Bible. Pick that copy of the Bible up and find Psalm 85 with us. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. Read it and learn about that God, learn about the God that loves you and desires a relationship with you. Psalm 85 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. So I brought a picture of a, a historical marker uh, that, that's in Georgia, actually close to, to where I grew up in Augusta. But look at this historical marker. On this historical marker is the name Daniel Marshall. Now I, I'm assuming that most of you in this room have never heard the name Daniel Marshall before. Maybe a couple of you have, but probably most of you have never heard that name before. But it's a significant name. And let me tell you a little bit of the story. So let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. Think back to uh, uh, your U.S. history class when you are in high school or your, your literature class that you took. And, and you probably remember, or even just thinking about church history, you've probably heard this name before. How many of you have heard the name Jonathan Edwards before? You ever heard that name? Yeah, some of you have. And so some of you, you remember in your literature class or your U.S. history class, you read a sermon. Can you imagine reading a sermon in a public school? But some of us did, didn't we? And it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God because it was a very famous sermon. And so I don't know if you know about Jonathan Edwards, but he was a pastor in, in a town in Massachusetts and he had preached this particular sermon that you might have read in your high school literature class. He preached it at his church and it went okay, but then he went and he preached that same sermon at another church on, uh, in, in July of, of 1741. And when he preached this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God at this second church, man, just the Spirit of God began to move on the people in that congregation. Jonathan Edwards, he was an intellectual kind of guy. He wasn't real fiery, wasn't real dramatic in the pulpit. But when he preached that particular sermon, and people became just so convicted 
that, that Jonathan Edwards had to stop several times while he was preaching it because people were wailing and crying while he was preaching the sermon. In fact, what some historians say is that, that, that while he was preaching that sermon, which was, if you have read it before, it, it very much in detail describes the wrath of God and what hell might be like. And, he, he, and the stories will say that as he was preaching that sermon in that little church, people began to hold on to the back of the pew, thinking they might slip into hell while he was, that's a sermon, right? My goodness, that they might slip into hell while he was preaching the sermon. Anyway, long story short, when he began to preach that sermon, a revival began to take place in that church that was spilled into the community. You probably have heard this name before as well. How many of, have you, of you have heard the name George Whitfield? Anybody heard that name, George Whitfield? George Whitfield was a famous, famous man. And so George Whitfield was actually uh, from England, but he traveled back and forth from England to the States preaching. In fact, over the course of his, his ministry in, in the States uh, for about 40 years, it's estimated that he preached about 18,000 times. It's a lot of preaching, right? Most of the sermons that he preached, that he preached outdoors because so many people would come to hear him, they just couldn't hold it inside. And, and so he was preaching and he, he connected with Jonathan Edwards and, and what happened through the ministry of people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, this movement took place in the United States. You know what it was called. You remember this from your history books as well. It was called the Great Awakening. Do you remember that? And, and what historians say, this is so amazing. What historians say is that, that by the time George Whitfield had spent 40 years preaching here in the States, there wasn't one person in the States that had not heard a sermon by George Whitfield. And historians also say that, that over that span of time, there was no part of America that was untouched by this movement of God. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine something like that happening in our country now? We need it, don't we? But, but that's what happened. And so, so, so while he was, George Whitfield was preaching, there was a man, 38 years old, listening to his message by the name of Daniel Marshall. And Daniel Marshall, he was influenced by George Whitfield. And as he was in, in uh, the, 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 that place where George Whitfield preached, he began to feel this call towards missions missions in the United States, not, not international missions. So he began to go to different Indian tribes in the States sharing the gospel. And he began to make his way down the coast and, and with some, someone else, a man by the name of Shubal Stearns, and they began to plant churches. In fact, before I came to Northwood, I was the pastor of a church in North Augusta. North Augusta, the name of the church was Big Stevens Creek Baptist Church. And every time I pulled my car onto the campus and drove to my parking spot, right, I would see this historical marker, not the one I showed you earlier, but this one, Big Stevens Creek Baptist Church, founded in 1762 by the Reverend Daniel Marshall. So the church that I pastored in North Augusta, one, it was really old, 1762, my gosh. And there was even some charter members there, but that's another story for another day. And so, so but this church... It was birthed, now watch this. This church was birthed out of the great awakening. And I can remember lots of times driving onto the campus at Big Stevens Creek and seeing that historical marker and thinking to myself, man, I would love to experience something like that. I would love to see God do in my lifetime what he did in the 1740s, 50s, and 60s. I would love to see a movement of God's spirit 
in my life, in my church, in my community, in my nation. Wouldn't you like to see that as well? Because let's be honest, here you are, and I, I don't know exactly where you are in your relationship with Jesus. I don't know exactly what's going on in your life, but, but, but here's why I know we all need some renewal. We all need revival. We all need to experience a, a work of God in our lives. And I, and I know this about you, that, that you're here this morning, and, and, and you might not say it this way, but, but I think this is true of you. I know that we all want more. We all want more than what we usually settle for in our relationship with Jesus. The question is, how do we experience more? How do we experience more than what we settle for? How do we begin to experience even a renewal or a revival that would affect our entire church that might spill into our community and even affect our nation? How do we begin to experience something like that? I think Psalm 85 helps us to understand how we might begin to experience something like that in our lives. This is a very powerful Psalm. And what I want to show you from this Psalm are, are, are just simply four ways, four ways that you and I can experience more in our relationship with Christ, how we can experience renewal in our, in our walk with the Lord, four ways to experience more in your walk with Jesus, to begin to experience renewal in your life with Him. Take your Bible, Psalm 85. When you find that, go ahead and rise to your feet as we honor the ring of God's Word, Psalm 85, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what the Bible says. Lord, you showed favor to your lamb. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned from your burning anger. Return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord. And give us your salvation. I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is very near uh, those who fear him so that glory may dwell in our land. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Truth will spring up from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven. Also, the Lord will provide what is good and our land will yield its crops. Righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning, for time now to gather around your word as a body of believers. And Father, as we gather around your word, we're trusting in these moments that your spirit is speaking to us. And we need to listen. We need to listen carefully to what you're saying. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready to respond to your voice in obedience this morning. Father, we want more. We want more than what we typically settle for. We want to experience renewal. We want to see our church changed by the power of your spirit, our city, our state, our nation. And so Father, would you do a work within us today? Would you do a work of revival in us? And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So if you've been with us now through the Psalms, we've talked about this numerous times, but you know this by now that the book of Psalms is divided into five different books. And those five different books remind us of the, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And you probably know if you've been around for the last few weeks that we are in book three of the Psalms. And, and we said that, that book three of the Psalms, a lot of these Psalms are written while the, the, the people, the Jewish people are in exile. 
They've sinned against God. And, and because they've sinned against God, God has sent them into captivity. Now, God warned them about this. God told them this would happen. But the people never really listened. They never really responded well to God's voice. They kept turning to idolatry. And so because they would not listen to God, God disciplined them by sending them into exile. But God promised, now watch this, God promised that there would come a day that he would what? Bring them out of exile. In fact, you can go to Jeremiah, for example. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, God promises his people that after 70 years, he would bring them out of exile and they would come back to uh, the land. They would come back to Israel and God would punish the Babylonians. And so here we are in Psalm 85. And, and, and we don't know for sure, but there are, are quite a few Bible scholars that, that say that this Psalm may have been written right after the exile right after they come out of Babylon and come back into the land of Israel. Now, obviously, when we read the Psalms, the psalmists do not give us dates or anything like that. But, but, but just based on context and things like that, there's a lot of Bible scholars that believe that may be the case. And, 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 and if that is the case, if this Psalm was written right after the exile, then you can begin to understand why the psalmist writes in the way that he does. Because just imagine it, 70 years that's a long time to be in captivity. That's a long time to be away from your homeland. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but if you go back and, and read the Old Testament story, and if you go back and read books like Ezra and Nehemiah, it, it talks about how the people came out of Babylon. And I don't know if you know this or not, but, but when they were able to finally come back to the land, they didn't all come at once. In fact, many of the people didn't come back at all. They stayed in Babylon but you would have a wave that would come and then a, a few more would come. And, and imagine what it would have been like to come back to the land for the first time. It could have been that, that some who came back to land weren't even born there. They were born in captivity. They were born in Babylon. And now they come back. And what do they see? I'll tell you what they don't see. They don't see a temple because when they had gone into exile, the Babylonians destroyed it. And if you remember the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, do you remember this? Ezra tells the story of how the people came together and they rebuilt the temple, that, that, that place that was so significant. We talked about last week together. But when they built that temple in the book of Ezra, it wasn't what it once was. It was nowhere near as glorious as the temple of Solomon. It wasn't as majestic. It wasn't as beautiful as the temple that stood in the days of Solomon. And when they looked around, just imagine what they saw. Imagine, you know, you're, you're later on in your life. If you had survived the exile and you, you went into captivity 70, you're now 80, 90 years old, maybe. You come home, where's your house? No longer standing. Where's your mama's house, your grandma's house? No longer standing. And so you come back and it's, it's kind of discouraging because the land of Israel, it wasn't what it was. And you think about it. Just a heartache. Yes, God had done what he said he was going to do. Yes, God had fulfilled his promise. Yes, God had brought them out of the land. But everywhere they looked was destruction. The land that they had so loved in days past, it was a, it was a wasteland, right? Now here they are. 
And Ezra leads them to rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah, do you remember the story of Nehemiah? Uh, that his brothers come and see him and say, you won't believe how, how bad it is in Jerusalem. And, and Nehemiah uh, takes a trip and begins the process of helping the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so they would have a defense system against their enemies, some fortification. But man, just think about those hard, discouraging days. And so here you have this psalmist. If he's writing after the exile, you can begin to understand what he says in verse one. He looks around, he sees the wasteland and he says, Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your fury. You turned from your burning anger. You see, what's going on in the psalmist's heart as he writes these words, if he's writing this psalm after the exile, is he doesn't want to forget what God has done. Because it would have been easy to forget. Because everywhere he looked, what did he see? Problems. He saw his broken city. He saw no fortification. He saw this uh, rinky-dink temple they were trying to rebuild. Everywhere he looked, he saw problems. And, And that might be your story too. That everywhere you look in your life, what you see is problems. You see, you know, you're not getting the, the notice you want on your job. You're seeing problems maybe in your family. You're seeing some, some stress at school or whatever the case may be. Everywhere you look, it seems like there's nothing but problems. You see the, 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 the state that our, our world is in and all you see is problems. And, and when all you see is problems, sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes when all you see is problems, it's difficult to see who? God. And maybe that's the, 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 the cry of the psalmist here. He looks around and he sees the, the problems and he says, you know what? Yes, there's a lot of problems, but I don't want to forget what you've done, God. I don't want to forget that you've brought us out of Babylon. Yes, this place looks like a mess right now, but, but you brought us back to our land. But not only that, look at what he says. You forgave your people's guilt. Look at what else he says. You withdrew all your fury. Come on, let's be honest. God shouldn't have brought them out. I mean, they were a mess of a people, sinful, rebellious, idolaters. But in grace, God did bring them out. And and so the psalmist says, what? I I don't want to forget what you did, God. Yes, I see problems, but I don't want to forget what you did. You brought me back home. You forgave my sins. You withdrew your fury. You had every right to be angry with me, but you did not show your anger to me. Instead, you showed me grace and love. You brought me home. I don't want to forget. I'll tell you why this is so important. Because you forget. I forget. Do you know why? Let me show you this. The first step to to really begin to experience renewal or revive our lives, the first way is we just don't forget because here's what happens. You forget what God has done because you make your God too small and you make your world too big. You know that, don't you? That we all have a tendency to do that. We all have a tendency to make everything else around us really big. And, 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 And here's the reality for some of you this morning in this room, in your life, there is something that's so big in your life. You've made it so big that you can't see God because you've made that thing in your life bigger than God himself. It could be a problem. It could be that, 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 that marital conflict that you're struggling through right now. It's just become so big that you can't see how God might overcome it. 
It could be, right? Uh, that, that disease you're struggling with, that it's just become so big in your life that you can't see how God can overcome it. You see, you've made your world, your problems, your issues, your career, your wealth, whatever it is, you've made all that stuff so big that you can't see the greatness of God. And so you forget. You forget what God's actually done in your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you forget that he saved you. He's forgiven you. He's given you a new life. You see, you forget all that because you've made everything else so big and you've made him pretty small. And so that's the question that you and I need to ask ourselves is what is it in our lives? What is it in your life this morning that, that you've made bigger than God himself? And I think for us this morning, if, if we want to think about beginning to experience renewal in our lives, it's beginning to allow God to be God in your life. It's beginning to see God for who he is, magnificent, great, wonderful, powerful, bigger than everything else you're going to experience in this life. You see, don't forget. Don't forget what he's done. Don't forget who he is. This past week, we celebrated uh, Hudson's eighth birthday. And, and, and man, it's hard to believe he's eight years old. When we came to Northwood, he was two. So we, I mean, it's just amazing how time flies. And Hudson, eight-year-old boy, he wanted for his birthday what all eight-year-old boys want for their birthday. He wanted a Fitbit. Because what eight-year-old boy doesn't want a Fitbit? I, I didn't really know why he wanted a Fitbit, but, but I promise you, he's been asking for a long time for a Fitbit. And so for about a year, I, Daddy, I want a Fitbit. I want a Fitbit. I'm like, I don't know what you're going to do. With, whatever. So I finally broke down. I bought him like that, that kid version of the Fitbit for his birthday. He opened it up. Man, best birthday present he ever got was a, a Fitbit. And so, so I, I brought a picture. And this was him I, the other night. Hey, after he got his Fitbit, you know what he's doing? He's trying to get his steps in. It's... <laughs> It's, 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 it's nine o'clock at night and he's running around the living room trying to get those steps in, right? I had to take a picture and run around the room getting his steps in. You know why I took that picture? Because it's the same reason why you, took picture, you take pictures. You don't want to forget, right? On your phone right now, I know this, that some of you have thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures. And every now and then you'll go back and scroll through them. And when you do, right, it reminds you of where you've been. It reminds you of that vacation. It reminds you of, of relationships. Those pictures are important to you because they help you to remember. In part, it's why you come to church every single Sunday. And I look across this room and I, I see lots of familiar faces that do come just about every single Sunday. And some of you come every single Sunday knowing that you're gonna hear pretty much the same thing you heard last week. But you come anyway, why? Because you don't want to forget what God is doing in your life. You come to a place like this and you worship and you thank God and you study his word because you don't want to forget who God is and how he's at work. Don't forget. And, 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 and now come on, fight the tendency to let the world become too big and God to become too small in your life. Don't forget. The psalmist isn't done. Look what he goes on to say. You come down to uh, verse four, and this is where it gets really interesting. You come to verse four. Return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that uh, your people may rejoice in you? Now stop right there. You, you notice this as I read it. The psalmist asked three questions, three rhetorical questions. The reality is, I think the psalmist knew the answer to all three questions, or at least to two of them. Think about it. Listen to the first question. Will you be angry with us forever? He knew the answer to that question. The answer to that question was what, church? No, right? If the psalmist is writing this psalm after the exile, he knew it. He knew that God had shown him grace. 
He knew that God had allowed his people back in the land. He knew that in the past, God had forgiven them and allowed them to come home. All right, think about the next question. Will you prolong your anger for all generations? God, will you be angry forever? Will you be angry with my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren and my great-great-grandchildren? I mean, how long will it go? The psalmist knew the answer to that question as well. Will God prolong his anger for all generations? No, because the psalmist knew the promise. The psalmist knew the promise that God was going to be gracious to his covenant people, that he was going to forgive his people and that ultimately he was going to bring about a Messiah for his people. The psalmist knew the answer to that question. Now, Now think about this. These two questions that the psalmist asked, they deal with what? The past and the future. God, I I know what you did in the past, you forgave me. And I know what you're gonna do in the future. You're gonna forgive. You're not gonna be angry forever. And you're not being angry with us now. You've you've forgiven us. But listen, listen, come on to the third question. Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? So you've got a past question. You've got a future question. This third question is what, church? It is a present tense question. It's almost like the psalmist is saying this, God, I I know what you did in the past and I know what you're going to do in the future, but God, what are you going to do right now? This is good because for many of us as Christians, we get focused on the past and we get focused on the future. We're thankful, now watch me, we're thankful that God forgave us in the past and we're thankful that someday we're going to heaven. But what about the right now? What about today? What about this moment? What about what God has for you today? We're thankful for the past. We're thankful for the future. But are we focused on what God wants to do in us right now? And what the psalmist says is right now, God, I want more. Think about it. Come on now, this is so good. God has brought the people back to the land. They're there. But what what is the psalmist saying? It's not enough. So what? We're back in Israel. What we need is you, God. What we need is for you to do a work in our hearts. What we need is for you to revive us, renew us. Now, when you think about that word revive or revival, and maybe you're like me and you grew up in church, it's particularly a Baptist church. You probably think about some meetings we used to have, right? We used to have revival services for three or four days and invite all our friends. But, but listen to this. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, a retired pastor, he says this. Revival isn't a ministry or an event. It's the process of the Holy Spirit engaging individuals in their hearts and transforming the church. Revival is the magnification of the everyday works of the Holy Spirit. During true revival, sleepy Christians wake up and non-Christians start exploring the gospel. Don't you want to experience that? Sleepy Christians like me and you waking up? Non-Christians interested in who Christ is and what he's done. Or think about this. Another pastor, Ray Orland, he says this, revival is a season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. Isn't that good? I mean, don't you want to experience that? We say we believe it, that the God is empowering his people for the work of the ministry, but are we living it? Are we seeing it? Are we experiencing that renewal? And so the psalmist says, listen, I I got it all. I'm I'm here, but I I want more. I I know I'm out of captivity. I know you've brought me home, but I want more. I don't want to settle for just being in the land. 
I don't want to settle for just the good stuff of life. I actually want to experience you, right? I read a story this week about um, an ice cream shop. And you guys know that, or most of you know, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of ice cream. I think it's a good thing. And so there's this ice cream shop that opened in, in Cape Town, South Africa. And it's become the hit of the town. They're selling out of ice cream like crazy because what they give or what they're selling in this ice cream shop in Cape Town, South Africa, they're selling handcrafted traditional African ice cream. I have no idea what that is, right? But, but when I read this story, they explained what it is. You know what their best selling flavor of ice cream is? Watch this. Salted fish ice cream. Does that sound good? Like salted fish. Now, for me, honestly, I mean, uh, I kind of go with the theory that there's no such thing as bad ice cream. But come on now, that don't sound too good. One of their other popular um, um, ice creams is, is caterpillar ice cream. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? But, but here's the question. Here's the question. Here's the question. Why? Why would they have salted fish ice cream? Why would they have caterpillar ice cream? I don't know the answer to that question, but I have a theory because they haven't had this, right? <laughs> because they've never had Bluebell. If they had Bluebell ice cream, they would never have salted fish ice cream. If they had Bluebell ice cream, they would never have caterpillar ice cream. And so what I want to do after church, I'd like for us to all sign up for a mission trip. And I would like for us all to take a trip to, to Africa and, and, ex, and you know, let them experience Bluebell ice cream because it would change their lives, right? But, but, but here's the deal, right? You wouldn't taste, or maybe you would, I don't know. You wouldn't eat a whole gallon of salted fish ice cream because you know there's better. You know there's bluebell out there, right? You've tasted and you've seen something better. See what I'm saying? All that to say, here's where the psalmist is. He's been there before. He knows that what God has is better. He's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You see what I'm saying? And you have too, because there was a point in your life that you came to faith in Jesus Christ and it was a glorious day. You tasted and you saw the goodness of God in your life. There have been seasons in your walk with the Lord where you've felt especially close to God. You've tasted and seen the Lord is good. There have been times in, in the life of a church like this that you've seen God do supernatural work in the body of Christ. You've tasted and seen that God is good. And now all the psalmist is saying is the same thing that I'm saying. And I want you to say too, God, I want that again. I want to experience that more, right? And so, so I'm not gonna forget. Now watch this. I'm also not going to settle. Don't forget and don't settle. Think about this, right? God can take away all your problems and there can still be a big problem, your heart. This is the danger when the people come back from exile, that God's brought them back into the land, but so what? So what that God's brought them back into the land? So what that he's taken away their problems if their hearts have not changed? And God in this instant could take away all your problems too. He could take away all your anxiety. He could take away all your stress. He could take away all your worry. But so what? If your heart's not changed and you don't long for him, so what if he takes it all away and gives you whatever you want? You see what I'm saying? And so I think what the psalmist is showing us is we can't forget, but we also can't settle. And, and that's, I think, the beginning of revival is when we as a people know that we can't settle for anything less than the goodness of God at work in us and through us. And so just think about this with me, right? How do you know if your heart longs for revival? Well, just a few ways. One, I pray more from, I pray for my church more than I complain about the church. 
That's how you know that your heart longs for renewal is you're concerned. You're concerned about what God is doing here. And instead of complaining about everything you don't like about the church, you start praying for the church. God, wake us up, wake us up. Or I care more about God's mission than I care about my own comforts and happiness. God, wherever you lead me, that's where I wanna be. Or think about this. I want my children, parents, to follow Jesus more than I want their success. So what? If they get the best job in the world, so what? If they make the team, so what? If they make all A's yet don't know Christ? And so for us, that, that heart that longs for revival is a heart for others. I wanna see my kids walking with Christ, knowing him. Or think about this, I desire to walk in holiness more than I desire my selfish needs to be met. I just want to be like the one who saved me. I wanna put on his character. Think about this. I want to spend time with God and his people more than I want to spend my time to entertain myself. Because you realize something, people that long for revival know that there's something significant that happens when you're in relationship with God and relationship with God's people. And you just wanna be there. You wanna be in the morning in the presence of God as you study the word and pray. You wanna be with the people of God. Or think about this, I want to confess my sin more than I want to stay in my sin. And that's the issue a lot of us have, right? Is you know it. You know those areas in your life where you're disobedient to the Lord, yet you do nothing about it. You stay there instead of saying, God, help me, forgive me. You lack the humility that come before God and say, God, it's me. No, no, no. Someone who longs for revival doesn't settle for sin. They're striving to put it to death. Someone who longs for revival, revival doesn't forget what God has done. And you just long to see God to do that renewed work in your life. You don't forget, you don't settle. Now, come on, you don't ignore. Listen to what it says. I love these verses. We got moved. Listen to what it says. Verse eight, I love this phrase. I will listen. Isn't that good? Because if you think about it, that's what got Israel in trouble in the first place, isn't it, church? They had a hard time listening. Kind of like you do. Kind of like I do. And because of their lack of listening, they didn't obey. They turned to idolatry and they found themselves in captivity. And so now if the psalmist is writing this psalm after the exile, he's there in the land and he says, God, I'll listen. I will listen to what you will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is near those who fear him so that glory may dwell in our land. You see what he's saying? I'm gonna listen. I've learned my lesson. I'm gonna listen. And when I listen, I know what you're gonna say. You're gonna declare peace. You're gonna say that as I walk in faith, all is good. I know what you're gonna say. You're gonna say peace to me as I listen to your voice and as I respond to your voice in obedience, right? Listen to what he says. I will listen and you will keep me from my foolish ways. How does God keep you from your foolish ways? He puts his spirit within you and the spirit within you what? compels you as you follow him to obey him. You see what I'm saying? And so essentially what the psalmist is saying is I've learned my lesson. We've learned our lesson. We will listen and we will obey because you are speaking peace and goodness over us. You see, here's the problem. That for, for many of us in this room, we don't know the difference between passive listening and active listening. You think about what James says in James chapter one, right? James says, don't be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. There's a difference between passive listening 
and active listening. And if you're a husband in this room, come on now, you know exactly what passive listening is because you do it like me every single day. Your wife can talk on for hours and hours and hours. And you can sit there like you're listening to everything she said, but not heard a word she said, right? I'm probably the only one that's ever done that, right? Or think about it this way. There's some of you who do that every single Sunday morning. You're here and some of you, you checked out about 30 minutes ago, right? As soon as the short blonde guy got up here, you, you turned off, right? You look like you're listening, but your mind's somewhere else. You see, we are masters at passive listening. And that's what's gotten us in trouble. That you have a God right now who is speaking to you, speaking to you, speaking to you, speaking to you over and over again. And if you're in this church, every time we meet together, God is speaking, 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 and you're just turning, choosing to do what? Turn him off and passive listening, right? There's a difference between passive listening and active listening. Active listening does not ignore the voice of God. Active listening says what? God, I'm hearing you. Now I want to respond. Think about this. So, 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 so many of you know that, that I teach preaching at, at, at Charleston Southern. And not only do I teach preaching there, I, I do a preaching lab here. And you guys know that, that I'm, I'm helping to train some young men to, to be better communicators of God's word. And when we talk about preaching, whether it's in my class at CSU or, or here with my group at Northwood, when we talk about preaching, we're always talking about application. That when, we, when people walk away from a message, we want them to walk away knowing how to put what we talked about into practice. And so I'm always telling my guys when I'm, I'm teaching them, there's three questions you need to help your people to answer. What should I think or how should I think? What should I do and how do I do it? Now I'm sharing those three questions with you because those are questions you need to think about every time you're under the word of God. When you hear a preacher like me preach, instead of passively listening, if you believe, now I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced you do believe this. If you believe that God is actually speaking through his word this morning, then you should be asking these questions. God, if you're speaking to me, how should I think? How should my mind be changed or conform to your will based on what you're saying to me now? How should I think about you, right? And in light of how I should think about you, what should I do? You think about a passage like this where, where, where the psalmist is crying out for revival. What do we do? We humbly approach God. We pray, we seek his face or whatever. You've got to figure that out in some ways in your own walk with the Lord. And, and then how do I do it? I know what I need to do, but what are the steps I'm going to take in place and put in place to actually do it? I'm just telling you, if you're interested in actively listening to the voice of God, so you might experience a work of God and ultimately might experience renewal or revival in your life, then every time you're under the word of God, whether it's on a Monday morning at six o'clock when you're in the word and drinking your coffee or in a worship service or in a small group, you're gonna be asking yourselves three questions and you're gonna be answering those questions and your, your desire to ask yourself those questions and answer those questions is a signifier that you're not ignoring God's word, but you're listening and ready. You see what I'm saying? Don't ignore. Don't settle. Don't forget. And finally, don't reject. We're done with this. Look at what it says. You come down to the final verses of the psalm and, and, and look at what he says in verse 10. Oh, I love this, these verses. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. I like the ESV translation. I'm reading out of the CSB, but the ESV translation says something like this. Righteousness and peace will kiss. Just this intimacy, right? Truth will spring up from the earth and righteousness will 
looked down from heaven. Now stop and think about this. A heart that, that longs revival. This is what a heart that longs revival ultimately wants. To know the faithful love of God. To know the truth of God. To know the righteousness of God. And know the peace of God. A heart that longs revival, that's what you want. You want to know God's love, his truth, his righteousness, his peace. That's what you want. A heart that, that straying longs for something else. A heart that straying longs for what? My will, what I want, my glory, my fame, my priorities. Not a heart that longs for revival. Faithful love, truth, peace, righteousness. Look at what he says again. Now, just come in close here here for a minute. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Can you think of anywhere in Scripture where this happens? Can you think of anywhere in Scripture where faithful love and truth will join together? Where righteousness and peace embrace? Can you think of just anywhere in Scripture where this happens? Sure you can. The cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, what happens, church? The love of God is demonstrated to us as the God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, goes to a cross and demonstrates his love for us by dying the death that we deserve. Faithful love and truth. Here's the truth. The cross proclaims to you. God loves you. God wants to forgive your sins. The cross proclaims to you. This is the way. Jesus Christ, he is the way, the truth, and the life. The cross Righteousness and peace kiss. They embrace. Because think about it. What happens at the cross is a great exchange. At the cross, Jesus takes your sin upon himself. And he suffers the punishment for your sins that you deserve. And in exchange, what you get, church, you get righteousness. The righteousness of Christ covers your life. Not because you are righteous, because you're not. The righteousness of Christ covers your life because Christ has given you his righteousness. He takes your sin. He gives you his righteousness, right? Righteousness and peace. So God can look at you and he sees the righteousness of his son applied to your life. He sees that Christ has paid your penalty. And he says to you, in spite of what you've done, because Christ has paid the price, now you and I, we're what, church? We're at peace with God. It's the cross. The cross is where faithful love and truth are joined together and righteousness and peace embrace. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, the God of all creation, church, offers you a gift. This is all you have to do to experience this faithful love, this truth, this righteousness and peace is to give your life to the one who gave his life for you. This one who died in your place and then three days later rose from the dead victoriously so you could be given the gift of life. So all of your sins could be forgiven. And there are some of you in this room this morning who for the very first time need to experience the gift of salvation. 
You need to respond to him by faith. You need to turn from your sins and turn to the God who loves you, who gave his son for you. And so in just a moment, we're going to pray together and conclude our time. And in the corners of this room, there are two crosses. And at those two crosses, there are going to be people there who are ready to receive you and pray with you and help you today to begin a relationship with Jesus as you believe today that Christ died for you and rose again. And as you turn from your ways and turn to him by faith. And if that's the decision you want to make this morning to give your life to Jesus, go to one of those crosses. We'll be glad to help you today begin a relationship with Jesus. If you're watching online, you're going to see a number on the screen. Text the name Jesus, that number, and we'll reach out to you and help you today begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now for the rest of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, listen carefully. What the psalmist is saying, revive me. I don't want to forget. I don't want to settle. I don't want to ignore. And I don't want to reject the work that you want to do in my life. Here's the reality. Follow, I'm talking specifically to you, Christian. You're hearing the voice of God week in and week out. He's speaking to you. But some of you will make a decision this morning to walk away and stay the way that you are and not allow God to help you grow in his love, his peace, his righteousness, his truth. You're gonna reject. Instead of saying to God this morning, revive me. I want more. I long to see a work of your spirit in my life. I long to see a work of your spirit in my church, in my community, in my state, in my nation. And so for us this morning in this room who are followers of Jesus, I think the invitation is real simple. God, revive me. And it's coming before God together as a faith family and, and humility saying, okay, this is where I've gone astray. This is, is what I've done to step away from you. This is the area in which I've sinned. This is where my rebellion has been. And this morning I'm confessing that to you, God, and I'm just asking you to revive me because I want more. And it's coming. Maybe this morning you want to come down front and just gather around front of me and, and pray for yourself, but also pray for your church. God, revive this church because there's a lost and dying community around us, around this church in a five-mile radius. There are about 70,000 people that live within five miles of this church, many who have never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. And God has put us here for them. But if all you're thinking about is you, you're never gonna think about the mission that God has called us to. And so God, help us, help us to, to have our eyes open to who we are and what you want to do through us. You see, revive us, Lord, for the sake of your gospel, Revive us. Maybe you just want to come and pray for your church that God would do a work in us collectively. We might be effective for his mission. I don't know. I don't know what God's saying to you this morning. I don't know how he's speaking to you. I don't know how he wants you to respond in this moment. But I know he's speaking to you and I know he's calling you to respond. So however he calls you to respond this morning, you respond by faith. Father, thank you for this morning and for time in your word. Father, for that person in this room who's never placed his faith or her faith in Jesus, I pray that person would come trusting you as Lord. And so Father, draw that person to yourself. May that person this morning experience the gift of salvation. And Father, for those of us who are your children, revive us. We confess this morning that we've strayed. We confess our sin to you. And we're saying to you this morning, we want more than what we settle for. We want to experience the power of God at work through us so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might go forth in this community and wherever else you lead us. So Father, revive us. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You rise to your feet as we have a time of invitation together. You respond to the Lord as he leads you this morning. You come.